Who'd win in a fight? Playground game. You've all played it, haven't you? I know this. You've, you've asked which elder's the strongest and you've, you've all concluded it's me, I'm sure. Let's start with this. Who'd win in a fight? This is a big one, for starters. This handsome fellow here, having his hair done by his daughters. And this, this lady here, my good wife, Rebecca. Who would win in a fight, I ask you? Shame on you. Not a chance would she win in a fight. That would definitely be me. I'm just, I'm not taking it. I'm going to usurp you on that. I'm going to overrule you. Let's vote next, though. Me versus the Queen. Ha Hang on now. Hang on, I thought that would go slightly differently. I banked on you joking about the first one, that Becky would beat me in a fight. I didn't bank on you saying the Queen would beat me. Uh, I'm going to go with the Queen as well, because I reckon she's definitely, if you look at this picture, she's definitely got that Ray Vision stuff, hasn't she, coming out of her eyes there? She looks... Queen versus a bear. Queen. The queen. The bear. Come on now. All right, though. Here's a, here's a harder one to call Batman versus a bear. Batman. No, Batman would win in a fight against a bear. Let's face it. Come on, he's beat some of the, the world's worst supervision. Supervisions? Supervillains. No, the 1960s Batman might have struggled in his tights. But every Batman since 1960s would have beaten a bear. Again, I'm not, oh, let's go even this, though. All right, so he'd beaten a bear. I'm taking... Um, he's a bear. What about shark? Do you know what? We, this one actually happened. This fight, this, I've got some footage of this fight actually taking place, so I can answer this one for you. Can we just play that footage? Let's see. This is a real-life fight between Batman and a shark. Look at that. There's Batman. Not, not the 1960s Batman, I might add. He's walking on ice, which he should never do. And the shark wins! There you go. There you go, that settles it. Batman would not beat a fight with a shark. Listen, you have to be careful who you're picking a fight with, because the biggest fish always wins, doesn't it? It's a good life lesson for you. Now let's move on. Listen, how are you doing with the story so far in Acts? We've been working our way through this. Do you know, how are you doing with what happened, what comes next after Jesus ascended to heaven? Has the great play of the birth of the church captivated you? Has seen how a few ordinary followers of Jesus, as they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they begin to see wonderful miracles and salvations in Jerusalem, caught your imagination and your heart? How these scared people who were hidden in that upper room suddenly confronted the same authorities that had killed Jesus, who boldly proclaimed, boldly proclaimed that he had risen from the dead. And how, seeing how God protected them in amazing ways. Has that changed your thinking on the church? Has how the very first community, gathered community, ecclesia as the church formed, full of the life and power of the Spirit, and it saw socioeconomic and cultural barriers absolutely destroyed to build one new man in Christ, got under your skin? Has, how although at the end of Acts we see the death of Stephen and this community separated and spread by persecution into the surrounding areas of Asia Minor and Samaria, yet actually what we really understand is that believers like Philip were being cast out into new fishing grounds, into the nations around them. 
as the believers were cast out by persecution, what we really see is God casting out nets into new nations. Has that caught you? Has it got you? Have you understood it? And I, I hope as you followed this story, you've been gripped anew by the main point in this account of the growth of the church, the main thing that this story is trying to bring home to us today, that the Holy Spirit is not a sideshow. He's not the side act. He's not the sideshow Bob to Krusty the Clown. The Holy Spirit is the main event, the showstopper in the church, the part of God's person who he wants us to understand, will build, will expand, will bring life to and grow his church then and now. Like we said at the outset of this series, after you've got Jesus, after you've understood what the cross is about and his resurrection and his ascension, what comes next is the Holy Spirit of God, learning to follow, learning to hear, learning to live by and with him. Has this captivated you? Has it captivated you? Again, because if these things have not captivated you, my hope is that as we move into chapter 9 today, of this great sweeping play of the birth of the church, it really should captivate you. Because here out of nowhere, our story, the focus of it changes tact slightly. We shift suddenly from those believers, followers of Jesus who have been persecuted and spread to different places like Philip, who was looked at last week and the week before, to the very person who is seeking to oppose and wipe out the church completely. The great enemy of the church at this time, Saul of Tarsus. Saul, who we've already met in our story, a well-educated Pharisee who oversaw the stoning to death of the first Christian martyr, Stephen, in chapter 7, and led the great persecution against the church that we read about in Acts 8, ravaging it, we're told, trying to tear it to the ground like a hurricane ripping through a tin town, taking believers, men and women, and throwing them in jail, stoning people to death, not caring about it at all. And when we meet him again here, if you follow, he is still breathing out threats and murderous intent on a journey to try and widen his own net, his strengths, his power to stop the spread of the way, this new Christian movement, by getting support of the high Jewish priest. This was a man completely, who completely hated and detested what the church stood for and wanted to totally stamp out Christianity so it had no future, no life. He wanted this verse, this bit here, to be where the story of Christianity throughout history ended. But something happens to him. Something happens to this man who had no mind to convert to Christianity. No will or desire in his being to follow Jesus. What we read here is as he went on his way towards Damascus, suddenly, suddenly, do you remember Dave's word? Do you remember Barry's word? Suddenly is an important word for us this year. It's one that God wanted to sow into our spirits prophetically. Suddenly, 
overwhelmed by the glory of God, suddenly this man was struck completely blind by the power of God. And he and those with him hear the voice of Jesus saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me in this way? And such was the crippling, disarming impact of this moment that when Jesus' voice goes on and commands him to enter the city of Damascus and wait for him there where he will tell him what to do, Paul was no longer able to guide himself. This man of all strength, of all power, who was ripping through the world, taking apart Christianity, he was no longer able to guide himself. No longer able to travel unaided, but had to be led by the hand, vulnerable and dependent for the first time. And when he gets into Damascus, all he can do is sit down and fast and pray and wait. Do you know, I could probably stop here and have enough to talk about for the rest of the morning. But that's not where the story stops in this chapter. You see... It goes on, while Saul is getting used to being blind, God speaks independently to another man, another believer, Ananias. And he gives, if you look at this verse that I've put up, he gives him an incredibly precise set of instructions, an amazingly precise set of instructions. The exact location he is to go to, Rise and go to Judas's house on Straight Street, God told him. He gave him the street name and the owner of the house as he was speaking to him. He gives him details of the exact person he had to go to and meet there, Saul of Tarsus. And what this person would be doing at the time he got there that he would be praying And he told him exactly what he was supposed to do when he got there. Saying that he had already given Saul a vision of Ananias coming to him, praying with him, laying hands on him and restoring his sight. I want to pause here a second in this story because I think it's got some implications for us in understanding God and the way the Spirit works. Phil Moore notes on this passage that we really know nothing about Ananias. Nothing, nothing at all. He is an ordinary nobody Christian like you or me. No great role or title in the church. No indication that he got to wear a fancy hat and big robes and stand at the front. No indication he was an international speaker. No indication that he always wore a microphone. No indication that he had any significant impact in the region he was living, not like Simon the Sorcerer in the last chapter. I'm not even sure he had a theology degree. But apparently none of this mattered to God in this moment. And Nias was just a disciple in Damascus with a relationship with the Holy Spirit. And this was all that mattered to God in this moment. And God speaks to him here with such a clarity. There are no fuzzy edges here, are there? 
Do you know, this challenges my expectations so much if I read it rightly, of who the Holy Spirit speaks to and how clearly he speaks. Do you know, I often believe in my heart of hearts that hearing God is a bit like trying to watch a TV with a bad reception, where you can't work out what show you were watching. I remember I was in Brazil uh, for one of the World Cups before the age of digital television, and I tried to watch this World Cup match where apparently Brazil were playing, but I couldn't quite work out what was going on, who the players were, who was scoring, and these Brazilians were going mental because they just clearly believed that the Brazilians on the TV were winning no matter what, which they probably were at the time, but I, had, I couldn't quite tell. And I often believe that hearing from God is a bit like this. And on top of this, I believe that those people who really only hear clearly from God are those people who are on big stages up front. Do you know what I mean? Christians, those Christians, Christian equivalents of the, the Darren Browns of this world who can do these really great Christian magic tricks up front on stage. I'm not actually belittling that. I think there's a place for that building faith. But you get what I'm saying here. I give them this special superstar status and they're the people who really listen to God. The rest of us, you know, what's going on? There's a bit of static there. But this could not be further from the picture painted in Acts. From what this passage and many, many more in the Bible indicate, when God's people here in this book and even non-Christians at times listen to his voice in the book of Acts, he gives much more detail, much more clarity than I'm often prepared to ask him for. And doing this leads to a whole raft of very unfamous, probably pretty dull Christians whose lives are a little bit like mine. I go to work, I hang out with my wife, I hang out with my kids, I see my friends, I eat quite a bit, I probably watch too much TV and sit in front of screens. I'm a fairly mundane person. It's why I don't tweet. It would be the least followed Twitter account in the world. I'm dull as dishwater. But the Bible shows that God speaks to dishwater people like me all the time and gives them some exceptional adventures in the process. Guys, in, in the coming months after Alpha, we're going to embark on a little bit of a, a new journey that I just want to tee you up for. There are some guys here, like Jenny and Rachel, who are going to be starting to, to put and sow into us some stuff in the prophetic and what it is to learn to listen to God's uh, voice. It's one of the stages that we're going to be maturing in and trying to mature in as a church. And I'm excited about it. I'm excited about what's coming. We've got to grow in this area of hearing God's voice as a church. I want to encourage you to spend time listening afresh. Because there are so many, if you read the Bible, Christian stories that begin with God speaking. And if you know your church history and some of the great adventures that have happened in church history, uh, it comes when somebody stopped and listened to what God really had to say. 
So I just, just one that I remember reading as a kid was the story of Sarah Di Cavallo, who became a Christian and got a heart for the astute children of Brazil, wanted to see them re- restored. And she learned along the way that they couldn't be, they couldn't be, uh, they couldn't be s- restored without being separated from their environment. And literally her and her husband at the time prayed. And in their prayers, they saw a a picture of a house clear as day, I remember, with blue shutters and blue doors out in the countryside nearby. And so they went looking for this house and lo and behold, they drove up this drive and there in immaculate detail was this beautiful house in the countryside in Brazil with blue shutters and blue doors. And I remember just being like, wow, Wow, that sounds exciting. They must be special people. No, they're not. They're dull as dishwater people who went on an adventure with God and listened to God because God speaks and he speaks with clarity. Great book, by the way. Sarah Di Cavalli and the Street Children of Brazil. Well worth a read. So God speaks to ordinary Ananias here. So what does Ananias do in response? Do you know, is he brave? Is he bold? Is he a superstar? No, not really, actually. Like when we read on, his response is this, uh, Lord, you've spoken to me amazingly, but I don't really want to go. Why? Because I know this man and he's not good news. I know this Paul Saul dude is out to kill us, to get us. In other words, what he's saying here is, Lord, uh, you know, speaks back to God. When this guy gets his sight back, he's not just going to take away, is he not just going to take away my freedom? Or kill me, as he has been doing? I'm not sure about your plan, Lord. I'm not sure about what you've asked me to do. Just adding to my last point, Ananias wasn't even all that faithful in the first instance when he did get this clear voice to him. But God still spoke to him clearly and was still faithful to him. He was worried that he'd be put in harm's way if he did what God asked him to do. And interestingly, if you read this passage here, God doesn't take away this risk. He doesn't take it away. Nowhere does he say, actually, you'll be fine. He doesn't allay his fear. He simply says, Ananias, go. Go. Go and do what I have told you to do. And he says why he's doing that. Because I am going to make him my gospel man. This one who tried to cast you out into the nations to destroy you. In fact, I'm going to cast him out to the nations for my name and my glory. And wonderfully, Ananias here, this ordinary believer, just obeys. He simply follows his Lord. And in meeting Paul, he greets him with the most wonderful affection for one he knew to be his enemy. Brother Saul. Brother Saul, he says to him. And then he simply does what the Lord asks. He prays for him, bringing Saul's sight back. And then he introduces him to who? The main character, the Holy Spirit. And Saul's response to this event is brilliant and complete. We don't read that he thinks twice about it before he even has time to eat, in fact. We see that what he does is he goes and he gets baptised. He goes and he gets baptised into the name of Jesus. There's no indication uh, that he dwells on what others might think of him here. There's no indication that the fear of all of these Jews, that they would judge the turncoat 
call him a betrayer of Judaism was playing on his mind. No, he just obeyed. He dies to his old life completely. That great picture of baptism shows us. Washed completely free of that old life and that sin and is raised to life anew with Jesus. And he goes on his way. And I just want to read what happens next before we go back to have a look at what's going on here a bit more. This is what happens straight away after he's baptised. Look at this. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. I mean, no doubt, he's the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem for those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Ah, oh, fervently, he just begins to preach the truth as soon as he's found it, such as the wonder that he's found in Jesus. So much so that he has to escape in a basket over a wall. I don't know how that works. It must have been a big basket, or he must have been very small. Next happens, and when he came to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, but they were all rightly afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, the Greeks, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. That's what happened to him. Do you know what happened here? Well, in summary, in the space of a couple of weeks, Paul went from being a full-blown red Liverpool diehard supporter, sold-out ticket holder like Kathy here, season ticket holder, and became the Blues' biggest fan. Hold on, there's more. Yeah. Evertonian till I die, he was saying. He went from what looked like the big team of the day, the winning team of the day, to proclaim the victory and glory and the truth of the little, the one that was being scattered and squashed. Hallelujah. He was willing to take on the cost willing to take a lifetime of pain on, willing to be rejected by everyone he stood with, hating him and plotting to kill him. A decision that cost him everything. And had it not been for this great guy Barnabas, it would have left him totally alone and in the middle. It just doesn't happen, does it, in our day? It doesn't happen. Not really in our lives. Atheists, they remain atheists, don't they? Once secular, always secular. Growing up a Muslim, going to be a Muslim. Agnostics, they remain on the fence. People's roots are just too sown into them to be pulled up and moved like this, aren't they? Aren't they? Yeah. 
Aren't they really? No. No? No. No. What the flip happened here then? How has this come to pass? I, I think it's very simple what happened here. Saul makes an error, a massive misjudgment that lots of people make both inside, we make it, and outside the church. In his mind, this was the battle. Saul thought he, the great scholar of Tarsus, the Pharisee, the renowned man, was up against just the way, just the Christians in the church, just some people with a different idea about the way life was, about who God was. And they just needed to be shown to be weak and foolish and they would be destroyed. Gone. In his equation, this fight was an easy win. Just needed a little bit of muscle. But the truth was so different from this. It wasn't really the Christians that he was picking a fight with at all. Because behind every ordinary Christian, everyone, like Ananias... There was a much more powerful backer. I'm going to tell a story now. It doesn't shroud me in glory. Do you know when I was a kid, would you believe it? I was a bit cocky. You wouldn't believe it. And it got me in some trouble. I know you wouldn't know this about me now, given the work that God's done in my life. But my wife often says that had she known me as a teenager, she just wouldn't have liked me. And I remember one time I was walking home from school and I was uh, having what could only be described as a slanging match with some girls off the local estate. Throwing insults at each other went too far. And I remember not giving two hoots, not giving a monkeys, whether I, what I was saying was harming them at all. I didn't care whether it was hurting their feelings. I just wanted to win the argument. Because in my estimation, I was smarter and I was wittier than them. And I, and I just wanted to prove it. I just wanted to show that I was better. And as we rolled through the insult topics, cocky little me moved on to commenting and joking about one of the girl's weights. And instantly, as I did this, the banter closed down. She said some very rude words to me, and he, her and her mates just walked off. And, and I thought nothing of it. Uh, nothing of it other than feeling smug that I got the last word in on the argument. And I just walked home with my mate, Jamie, having a laugh. It wasn't until the next day, when I was walking home again at the same time as I did every work day, carrying my Homec-made tin of chocolate cookies. Uh, and my way was blocked as I walked down this path by the three girls. And behind one of the girls I'd insulted, was her massive adult boyfriend, fresh from the building site. <laughs> At which point, I thought a lot about what I'd said. <laughs> Is that him? He asked. Yes, the girl said. Did you call my girlfriend fat? The guy asked. Uh, yes, I did, actually. Yes. Right, stand there and don't move. Okay, sir. There was no way I was moving. 
at which point his girlfriend walked straight towards me and holding nothing back, lamped me straight in the face and I dropped my cookies. And I heard my mate Jamie make this noise. <laughs> Don't do that again, said her boyfriend. I won't, I said very genuinely. And I learned some valuable lessons from this experience. First was this, you never comment on a lady's weight. It's very important. It stood me in good stead since then. It was the last time I've been punched. The second was that when your brother hears you've been punched by a woman for being cheeky, he will not jump to your defence, but he will laugh at you with your best mate when you get home, saying, what? You got punched by a girl, you deserved it. And finally, I learned that I was sorely deluded for ever thinking I had the upper hand in this exchange with the girls. There was no way, ultimately, that I would ever have won this weight, this, this banter battle, this fight. Because backing up these girls was somebody far bigger than them and stronger than I ever was. I had sorely miscalculated that they were the weaker party. In fact, I got lucky on this occasion that she punched me and not him because he would have snapped me like a twig. The real battle was never me versus the girls. It was me versus the girl and the unseen boyfriend in the background who would always step in when needed for the one he loved. And Saul's equation here of him versus the church, he makes this mistake on a much, much, much bigger scale. You see, the real fight he was picking when he picked it with the church was this. Paul versus those weak Christians and the risen Lord who defeated death, created the heavens and the earth and sovereignly does whatever he wants. Jesus, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end of time, the one who sustains and holds all things together by the power of his created word, whose planet is and has always been through the church to make his glory and kingdom reign known forever in increasing measure until the end of eternity. Whoops. Whoops, what a miscalculation. You see, behind the church is Jesus. It's Jesus. In fact, so clearly does he stand with it that we find out that when Saul persecutes his church, he takes it so very personally. It affects his heart so much. But he says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Me. That in itself is a big thought for us to get right in our heads. How much does he love you? This was a fight that in the long haul Saul was never going to win. And only arrogance and wrong perspective led him to believe he could. There was only one outcome in this fight. In fact, the only remarkable thing in this passage is this. You know, there's lots of miraculous stuff in this passage, but only one truly remarkable thing. The grace that Jesus shows Saul. Just as that girl's boyfriend was pretty gracious with me for not punching me directly, it is truly remarkable that God didn't just wipe the persecutor Saul, who had killed Christians and sp spread his church off the face of the planet. 
but instead he shows him love, grace, forgiveness, and an incredible place and role in his history of the church. In fact, most people write that Paul, after Jesus, was the most influential Christian in the whole of Christendom. He did not deserve this. He didn't deserve a place of honour. He didn't deserve this forgiveness. He was a murdering bully. But God gave it anyway, and that is remarkable. That is who God is. That is who he is. To all who turn to him and accept the cross, he is the forgiver and the restorer, the whitewasher of scarlet sins. And so the most powerful enemy of Christianity in the day becomes its greatest ever supporter. Isn't that flipping brilliant? Is it flipping brilliant? Oh, you're so... I know we're English. I quite like being English in reserve, but we're so English, aren't we? It's brilliant. It is brilliant. What do we do with this? Ah. Now, the final verse of this passage is this. So the first thing is this. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and all walking and all walking in the and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit it multiplied. The conversion of Saul had a deep and lasting effect on the church. They realized whose side they were on. They realized just who was fighting for them that God really did have their back. And the effect was peace, where there had been anxiety. God was for them. They were never adrift at sea, but in his plan. Fear of God took over them rather than fear of man. No longer were they afraid of those who would harm them, but God alone. God was with them, just as he had been with David when he took on Goliath. There was only one truly mighty one in that battle. Comfort in the Holy Spirit replaced unease. Even in their darkest moment, God was by their side, leading them with his rod and his staff through the valley of the shadow of death. And because of all of this, multiplication happened. They were brave in evangelism because some seed would take root and lead to eternal life. Church, we sometimes forget whose side we are on and who our backer is. And it has a massive effect on how we live our lives. As a result of it, we're often robbed from the peace, thinking that the waves will overwhelm us because we cannot hold them back. Assurance, comfort in situations, uh, they seem so big to us, but these are things that just don't scare God. They're no match for him. Do you know, Saul, after he changes his name to Paul, later writes in his encouragement and letter to Rome, this question. If God is for us, who can be against us? Romans 8.31. If God is for us, who can be against us? You see, Paul in his life here learned a valuable lesson when he stood against Jesus. Jesus is the biggest fish in the sea. And just like 
many a king learned in the Old Testament, like King Jehoshaphat learned when he faced the insurmountable army of Moab. Paul wants us to know what 2 Chronicles 20, 2015 teaches, that you do not need to be afraid because the battle is not yours, it is God's. He's not in your army, you're in his. He's your backer. He's your backer. That's what the Bible teaches. That's just the truth of the matter. Listen, in this final and most important week before Alpha, it really is. This is, this is the time when invites are accepted and lives are changed this week. No Goliath is bigger than God. No Goliath is bigger than God. No husband you've been praying for for years. No atheist friend who's already said no. No Goliath is bigger than God. No Saul can overcome the church. Let that rest in your spirit. Not because I've said it, because the word teaches it in a new way this morning. Secondly, if you're not a Christian, honestly, the Bible says you're not on the winning team. And it's a mixture of wrong perspective about who God is and who you are. And maybe, just maybe, a little bit of pride. A little bit of pride about holding on to your own views as being right. A little bit of arrogance there. A little bit of concern about what other people might think if you became one of those Christian weirdos who stands here and says, Holy Spirit, fall afresh on me. I love it, by the way. Just, I'm all into the weird. But it looks a little different, doesn't it, the Christian life? When you're following the Holy Spirit. Maybe it's these things that are keeping you there, but you're not on the winning team, the Bible says. God is not just a story. He's not just a made-up philosophy. He is living and real, risen again in history at the cross. He really sent his son to make a way for all to encounter the same grace and truth that Paul did in this passage. And my goodness, if he's going to show that grace to Paul, I would hazard a guess. I might be wrong. You might be keeping some things in the closet. But I would hazard a guess that your past is not as bad as Paul's past. That the walls are not as big as Paul's walls. God? No. He wants to win hearts. He wants to pour out grace. He wants to show you his love. He wants to give you a place in his plan and purposes to advance his kingdom joy. He wants you never to be alone again, but to know the Holy Spirit all the days of your life through death and on into eternity. It's a pretty good deal. Listen, if you're in this place, if, if you've got a sore bum, if you're on the fence, Listen, I'd love to invite you this morning with all genuineness to Alpha. If there's any doubts in your mind, this course that starts in Tribeca this week is the one that changed my life, actually. We're doing a short version of it, but help me so much. 27th, 7.30pm. Here you can bring your current perspective. Here you can listen and test the Christian perspective with questions and hopefully encounter something of God's Great love.
and glory and grace that has captivated us here this morning.